Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. It is Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today in our second segment, we're going to be speaking with Mr. Frank Cronin. He studied at graduate level in education at Harvard University, at the University of Connecticut, in leadership at Columbia University, and in theology at Regent University and Holy Apostles College and Seminary. He also writes regularly for the National Catholic Register and appeared on EWTN's The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi following his 2007 reversion to the Catholic faith from atheism and evangelical Protestantism. We're going to spend some time talking about his conversion and about his book, The World According to God. But first, as always, we want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn, Bryan College Station. Also welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco and our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. We are live this morning, so if you have something going on in your parish you want everyone to know about, feel free to give us a call on 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-6837-332. We look forward to uh, hearing from you, and as always, we look forward to hearing from our station manager, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you? Deacon Mike, you are too kind. Man, you are making me feel really good this morning. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. Good to see you, and um, it's nice in this pandemic er uh, that we're able to do this live on the air in person yes sir rather than by phone which was not a fun thing to do for a while no i didn't i didn't enjoy uh missing out on your lovely face ah now i know he's lying <laughs> luckily there are plenty of uh, reconciliation services coming up in the month of december yes and i did not print them out so um, that's okay you didn't have to because we've got a uh, spot running on the air repeatedly, letting people know, and we've got all that information on our website, redsearadio.org slash advent. There you go. So you have access to those times and dates. Indeed. Just either log on to the website or keep listening to Red Sea Radio. Yeah, just don't turn it off, and you're going you're gonna to hear one of those PSAs about confession times. Wonderful. Um, we are now in a brand new year. Yes, we are. Brand new liturgical year. Liturgical year. For the church, the year starts at the first Sunday of Advent, which was Sunday. And um, you'll notice the colors in the church have changed to a more somber violet color. Call in to 85 Love Red Sea, 855-632-7332. I butchered the number. I'm sorry. But call in. If you know which cycle of readings we're on now, we've got a free book with your name on it. Call in now. 
Is that for the uh, weekday masses? Sunday masses. Sunday masses. Sunday masses. Very good. Don't, don't try to make things. Don't try to show me up, Deacon. Trying to show me up. But uh, while we're waiting for everybody to call in to claim that book, um, I wanted to talk just a minute about Advent yeah. and what the whole season is about. And I think the easiest thing to describe Advent is the word hope. Mm. Advent is the season of hope. We are looking forward, always looking forward, never backwards. We might think that we're looking backwards to the incarnation, but in the church, we're always looking forward. We're looking forward to the celebration of the incarnation in real time. Mm -hmm. We're meeting Jesus where he is, mm -hmm. and he's always with us. Yes. And so it's always a hopeful, forward-looking season. And I think that especially in the time that we're living in right now, one of the things we need more than anything else is hope. Indeed. And so I pray that everyone listening spends this Advent working on that sense of hope because God wins. And so when we're looking at the coming of Christ, that is a victory. When we look at every time we're able to receive the Eucharist, when Jesus comes to us at Mass, that's a victory. And when we look forward to the second coming of Christ, which is one of the other things we look forward in Advent, it is a victory. And so a reminder that Advent is a season of hope. And all of us need hope right now. One of the other things that one of the other things that uh, is interesting about Advent is normally during Advent the um, Sunday readings take precedence over anything anyway. But even during weekdays in Advent, we celebrate the Advent day rather than a lot of feast days. But we have some important ones coming up. And uh, one of the important ones coming up is coming up on December 6th, which is this Sunday. Of course, we're going to be celebrating the yes. second. Good morning. Good morning. Are, are you calling in to answer our question? Oh, yes, I am. I'm calling in to say that it's cycle two. Mm, okay, that's the weekday cycle. Right. Oh, what did you say weekday? I got confused. Well, the weekend the cycle is. Uh, uh, we're looking for the Sunday. Weekend. We're looking for the Sunday cycle, oh, caller. Okay. And it. Uh, well, then I'm probably wrong on that one, but I'm going to guess it. Can I guess it? Yes. I'm guess B. Very good. Very good, caller. Very good. Cycle B. <laughs> the next time you stop by uh, the Red Sea Catholic Radio Studios, you've got a free book. From our awesome. from our extensive library. Well, y'all have a great show. All right, you so too. cycle cycle B, everyone. We're in cycle B now. Thank you, caller. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye -bye. Spread the word. Bye. And um, didn't want to put her on the spot, but uh, cycle B focuses on the readings 
from the gospel according to Mark. Mm -hmm. So during the Sunday readings, we will be listening to Mark's. The shortest gospel. The shortest and the most imminent gospel. Yes, yes. It is very much. Immediate. 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 Um, Back to what we were talking about, the feast days coming up during Advent. And uh, one of the things we celebrate this coming Sunday is the feast of St. Nicholas. Hey. And um, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about this when I was growing up. I grew up in Germany for part of my youth. Okay. And in Germany, we don't have Santa Claus. We celebrate St. Nicholas Day on the 6th of December. Mm-hmm. And on the 5th of December at night, everyone put their shoes out. Mm-hmm. Side of their bedroom door, and when we you put woke your clogs up, out, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> and we put our shoes out, and when we woke up in the morning of the sixth, Saint Nicholas had come and filled those you shoes. You had those with, coal, right, in yours. Uh, mine usually coal. My brothers and sisters had apples and oranges Just. and nuts and chocolate and things. Uh, but we may wonder where this whole notion of Santa Claus, of Saint Nicholas bringing gifts, comes from. And it actually comes from the St. Nicholas from uh, Myrna, and uh, he was a bishop. And the most famous of the stories related to this is that one of the fathers that lived in the town that he was the bishop of had three daughters who Mm -hmm. wanted to be married but the father did not have enough money for a dowry. Mm-hmm. And so St. Nicholas reportedly dropped off three at three different times enough money for them to have a dowry so the daughters could get married. Wow. And so this became very famous in a very short period of time. And the idea of... St. Nicholas bringing gifts spread through both the Eastern and the Western Church. Right, and let's, I think another part of the story that we can we can bring out is that he was, uh, he was, I think be, it became famous not only because he was giving money to this family to have a dowry for the three daughters, but by providing a dowry for the daughters to the father, he was saving the virtue of those three daughters daughters, if you get what I'm driving at. Yes, because the possibility of them having fruitful work was nil in that time. That's right. And so That's right. the things that were open for them were not virtuous. Were not virtuous. Exactly. And so uh, that sense that he was saving them in a way mm-hmm. uh, has always been part of that story of St. Nicholas. So kind of, um, it's a good example of doing justice or doing social social work with the aim of building up virtue in those that we do that charity to we shouldn't just that that should be our primary aim is is building up virtue in people as we serve them materially i think that's something that you can take from that story yes and i think this is important to remember that the church is not just another NGO. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the church works to bring people closer to Christ, and part of that job is to take care of their physical needs in order for 
in, increase in virtue in the world around us. Indeed. And if you don't mind me jumping in just really quickly, if we're talking about um, giving things to, to people and doing acts of charity, the St. Vincent de Paul Society here in the Bryan College Station area is really, really in need of gifts for their Giving Tree project. Um, it runs from November seventh to December sixth. They're only about halfway towards their one thousand their one thousand gift goal. There is, you can drop off gifts at St. Joseph's Church Parish Activity Center. We've got a PSA running on our airwaves to give you more information. You can check the St. Vincent to Paul Facebook page. All the Catholic Church websites have info on this Giving Tree project. Please participate. Please make yourself a part of the St. Vincent de Paul Society's Giving Tree Project. Okay, and that's another way. And you can you can uh, it's ending on St. Nicholas's feast day, December sixth. So you can mirror the charity of St. Nicholas by being a part of this. And I think this is uh, so important, especially again in the pandemic environment. All these charitable things become so much harder. People are not wanting to get out, and that's understandable. Yeah, it's harder to get volunteers. It's yes. harder to process these things. Yes, and so the more people that become involved in ways that they normally didn't get involved, the better off it is for these uh, charities trying to make a difference. Yep, and ultimately, again, as we were talking about Saint Nicholas, the whole point is to make a difference in people's lives, not just to give stuff, right? but to change lives. Right. Do you have time for a, a fun story with St. Nicholas? Because the other way you can imitate St. Nicholas is by punching a heretic, right? Uh, yes. And uh, we do not advise you to go around punching heretics. <laughs> but uh, what have you got for us, Thaddeus? Oh, just just the idea that uh, St. Nicholas, he was a bishop, and he was, uh, he was one of the bishops that was at the Council of Nicaea that uh, debated and eventually sided on this— uh, orthodoxy of um, against Arian and against Arianism, which was a heresy about the incarnation of Christ. And reputedly, St. Nicholas was so incensed at Arius speaking during the council that he got up and either slapped him across the face. Some accounts say that they punched him in the nose. And so that's that's the other side of the St. Nicholas who became Santa Claus. Yes, zealous for the truth. Exactly. Sometimes too zealous. Uh, we're not going to have uh, time to go into the other portion, uh, portion that I was going to talk about, but uh, just briefly, the other feast that's coming up is the Immaculate Conception on December 8th. And I uh, want to remind everybody that all Mariology— is ultimately Christology, and the whole reason we celebrate the Immaculate Conception is remind us who Jesus is. So we're going to take a break. On the other side, we're going to be talking to Frank Cronin about his book, The World According to God. See you all on the other side in just a moment. And 
And we're back, and as promised, we're going to be speaking with Mr. Frank Cronin, who's studying our graduate level in education at Harvard University and at the University of Connecticut, in leadership at Columbia University and in theology at Regent University and Holy Apostles College and Seminary. And uh, Frank, welcome to the Red Sea Roundup. Uh, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. How are you? I am doing fine. Um before we get started uh, talking to you, um, I introduced you as Frank Cronin, but your full name is Francis Xavier Cronin, correct? That's correct. Yep. Yes, I wanted to bring that up because tomorrow we will be celebrating the feast of Francis Xavier, one of the original Jesuits. He was a follower of um, St. Ignatius of Loyola and uh, mm -hmm. spent a lot of his time doing missionary work in the East. Um, and um, one of the great saints of the Jesuits. So um, one of the things, uh, I mentioned your uh, appearance on the journey home, talking about your reversion to the Catholic faith, because you were baptized Catholic, correct? Yes, I was uh, I was baptized Catholic and uh, went to Catholic schools from first grade till uh, one year in college, and sort of fell away from the Catholic faith to basically believing in nothing, atheism. <laughs> well, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, i I wasn't I wasn't raised in a uh, a real Catholic environment. I was in the schools and stuff, but. Uh, we were one of those families that it was six or eight times a year we go to mass and stuff. And um, so when I got to be uh, late in my late teens, I began to do a lot of reading. I made a New Year's resolution uh, that year to read a book a week. And over the next 18 months, I read like 160 books, uh, most of which was all the wrong reading, because by the end of that period, I pretty much concluded that uh, there was no point to existence. And, uh, you know, when there's no point to existence, God goes out in the bathwater with that. So I had become basically an existential atheist for about 15 years until my mid-30s. Now, we talked earlier, uh, and we talked about your um conversion from atheism to evangelical Protestantism, and I found that story just fascinating. Would you touch a little bit on this and the role your wife played in this? Sure. I mean, I, I can understand most people thought it, think it's pretty interesting, but living it wasn't as much fun as it is telling about it. But uh, 10 days before I was to marry my wife, and we had kind of a long period of being together, and I was I was kind of uh, guarded and reluctant to be married. I hadn't seen much that was very successful in my own life or in my immediate life around me growing up. And so uh, I had finally said, okay, let's get married. And 10 days before that, my wife announced that she's now a born-again Christian. Um, and that didn't go down real well with me. Uh, I had a really hard time with you know, you're bringing God into our relationship at this point. We're ready to get married. And uh, my wife, it, she was on this phone call now, would, would say, I wasn't even sure he was going to show up at the church. And, I, you know, that was a pretty fair and accurate description of where I was at. Uh, even on our wedding day and over our honeymoon and months following that, uh, you know, I would warn her. I said, look, if this becomes a big issue in our relationship, I'm out of here. I'll be out of here in six months if necessary. And so 
Uh, that's how we began our married life. Now, I can imagine the shock that you went through, you know, 10 days before the ceremony, dropping such a life-changing uh, bomb, actually, in the relationship. And I... Yeah, that's the way I saw it. <laughs> and I'm impressed that you all went ahead and got married because that is an important part of any relationship is, you know, a similar worldview. And I'm right. impressed that the two of you made it work. Well, I don't think my wife really understood what a profound shift that was. Uh, but for me, I really understood that pretty clearly. I've always been a bit philosophically inclined and to all of a sudden drop religion and a whole bunch of uh, definitive moral principles into the middle of the relationship was like, you got to be kidding me. So, uh, but my wife is, um, you know, she had, she had really lame reasons. Like, okay, how do you know that God exists? And she, she would say things like, I don't know. I just know it. You know, Frank, this is, I, that's what I know. And uh, I began to kind of see the wisdom in that is uh, when I started considering if someone had asked me, well, how do you know your wife loves you? I could, point to some things, but whatever I could point to for evidence or description would somehow really not encompass the whole. And so given that I have kind of reasoned my way, okay, so there's probably evidence of God, but it's something a little more elusive than that. I, I felt like I owed her uh, in the question uh, a thorough hearing. And so I spent roughly about three years going through you know, agnosticism, deism, not in a linear sense. That would oscillate day by day, depending on what I was thinking about. But uh, but after about three years, I had I was convinced, okay, there's a God. And uh, then I had to grapple with, okay, who's this fellow Jesus and what's that all about? He's saying crazy things like, I am God. And so that, that took me another two and a half years uh, to kind of work that out. What led you from... Embracing evangelical Protestantism to finally at looking at Catholicism as the true religion and then converting. Well, um, you know, when I when I first became a Protestant, uh, C.S. Lewis was a big component of that. So it was uh, I, I came more from uh, an intellectual grounding and then. Uh, embrace the spiritual stuff. And I was a very contented Protestant. I wasn't looking to be Catholic. Uh, I was enjoying, you know, my Protestant life. And I was, again, I was pretty philosophically inclined, which is somewhat atypical of, of evangelical Protestantism. And I would teach in, in the region and at different churches and at my home around, you know, the philosophical or rational groundings for things, which I guess it, looking back on it was already kind of strongly leaning to the Catholic faith, but uh, my secretary at work uh, asked, had been asking me to read this book, uh, Scott Hahn's book, um, The Rome Sweet Home. And uh, so I read it and I, about halfway through, there was uh, four sentences in the, in the middle of the book where he basically uh, totally destroys the Protestant epistemology, their theory of knowing, which is sola scriptura, the only scripture can give us uh, truth about faith and morals. And um, the basic line was, uh, if, if only scripture can do that, then that would have to be said in scripture explicitly, and it isn't. 
Um, there is no place in Scripture where it says only Scripture. It says all Scripture, but nowhere does it say only. So now I'm faced with, a, a I felt like, a pretty clear case of their theory of knowing was a contradiction. To tell me that it's only Scripture and Scripture not to, not to say that, uh, that kind of blows up the whole thing. And that didn't immediately make me be Catholic, but I spent the better part of that summer kind of doing my research on that. And then I began to consider what the Catholic theory of knowing was. And that, that fit very well between uh, the Catholics emphasis on what they call natural theology, that reason alone can prove different aspects of who God is in his nature. And then the appeal to revelation as well to the church's tradition and, and its authority given by Jesus to Peter and the, and through the church down through the century. So that's that's how that came about for me. Again, we're talking to Mr. Frank Cronin about his book, The World According to God, and we started out talking a little bit about his conversion or reversion story. Now, one of the questions I had is, now, you joined your wife as a evangelical Protestant. Did she follow you into the Catholic Church? Well, um, ultimately she did, um, but I was, because I had done the homework, and, and again, I was the, uh, the the family theologian and apologist, uh, I was pretty well ready to go at the end of that first summer, but my family wasn't. So what we chose, or what I chose to do was, we stayed in our Protestant church, and after uh, service at church, we'd usually come home and have dinner together, because we, we always took as Protestants and as Catholics the the injunction about, you know, not working on Sunday. So we would spend a lot of family time together. So we would have our typical family lunch after after church. And then uh, I read the book, uh, Rome Sweet Home and The Lamb Supper, both by Scott Hahn, aloud, uh, sentence by sentence. And, as it, and all of the family would participate in the discussion and debate about some of that stuff. So uh, that went on for about, oh, about 10 months. Uh, and then I said, okay, I'm ready to go in. And at that point, my wife was ready to become Catholic. And my youngest daughter, who was 16 and under 18, I told you, you're going to be Catholic. What you do after you're 18 is fine, but you're still, you know, under my uh, my kind of tutelage as a father. And I had two other daughters who were living at home and going to college. And uh, I asked them if they, they would uh, attend RCIA with the uh, the three of us, and they all agreed to that, and, and you know, by Christmas, they were ready to be Catholic. So, uh, you know, it took them about three, four months, having already gone through uh, Rome Sweet Home and the Lamb Supper on our own the year before we became Catholic as, as a family. Now, a quick question, and uh, this is just sure. from my own curiosity. Your wife comes more from a... I don't want to say emotional sense, but from a spiritual side of things, you yes. come at, yes, from an intellectual side. Now, your daughters, do they all take tend to lean towards one or the other, or is there a mixture? Well, I, I think this some of this probably traces back to our Protestant years, um, because you know we've had some of those uh, those kind of powerful experiences. We were kind of along the line of Pentecostal with charismatic flavors, not entirely, but we had those kind of experience. So 
my wife picked up a little more of the doctrinal intellectual stuff and I became more open to the spiritual dimensions. Um, so we were, I think we were generally at that point, uh, those kind of two components in us, the, the, the mystical spiritual and the intellectual, uh, rational things were wedded pretty close and, and all three of my daughters, uh, kind of embraced that. I mean, my youngest daughter has a, uh, she went to Holy Apostles College and Seminary for undergrad and a master's degree. So she has a BA in Catholic philosophy and an MA in Catholic theology. So, um, but the other ones are all pretty pretty strong readers as well. So uh, my oldest daughter, in particular, she has a master's and is a speech path, but but she really uh, she reads a lot as well on those kind of things. So. Um, I don't know that there was that big of a change because we were already odd for the Protestant thing in that there was a very rich and strong philosophical side to what probably coming from me. And then, you know, the girls were also pretty open to the, the richer spiritual experience that would be more inherent to evangelical Protestantism. This has always been one of the more fascinating aspects of faith life to me is that dichotomy that, you know, people come into the faith based on how God made them. You're either much more sense-oriented, much more spiritual, or you're much more intellectual. But one always leads to the other if you allow it to. And it's St. Well, Th- I think that's absolutely true. Yep. Yeah. It always reminds me of St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, at the end of his life after all this brilliant work. You know, he's leaning on the tabernacle saying it's all so much straw because he realizes ultimately it's not about the intellectual side. It's just trusting that God is who God is. Mm-hmm. So this well, is always uh, fascinating. Go ahead. Well, it, inside the the book, I kind of cite this example from uh, my life at Regent University. Uh, it was like the, the second day of Greek class that I took in my first semester there. And uh, this professor uh, just had such a great way of, it was an insight, but it was more affirmation because it was all already something we were living. So, uh, and basically what he said, he asked the class, well, what is the opposite of knowledge? And in pretty short order, the 70 or 80 kids that were in the class said, well, that would be ignorance. Either you know something or you don't know something. He said, spoken like the children of the Greeks and the Romans, but what would be the opposite of knowledge to a Hebrew? And we pondered that for a little while. This has got to be a trick question. But ultimately, more sheepishly, we added, well, probably ignorance. And he said, no, the opposite of knowledge to a Hebrew would be estrangement, interpersonal distance. And the cool part of that is, is it, while those two dimensions, the intellect and the, and the spiritual side uh, are two, they're really one. Um, in that if you have an inter if I know something about a person, I I not only have information but I but I have an encounter with them. I can see this. Uh, and so uh this Hebrew understanding of knowledge was was really kind of um a way of knitting those together because you you can have an experience but in the experience you know and you can have the knowing but you're also experiencing because God is a being just like we are. I mean, that's why uh, when 
when you apply for a job, you usually send in a resume that tells them a bunch of information. But no, almost nobody I know gets hired without a, an interview. Why? Because we know we need more than just information. We need an encounter with this person. We need an, and I. So um, for me uh, and for our family, that that has become the reality that we've moved in since '92. So, and this is so important because God is relationship. And the more we Correct. know about God, the more we enter into that relationship. Absolutely right. That's exact. That's a great way to put it, Mike. Well, let's move into the book. And um, the book is fascinating because it does talk a little bit about your figuring out how to talk to people about your change in your relationship with God from atheism to evangelical Protestantism to the Catholic Church and how to talk to people. And um, a lot of this, I'm sure, had to do with, you know, people asking you questions. Well, I think, um, and this is where, uh, I think in the modern world, we're not sure that we can know much of anything other than science, uh, what science teaches us. And, and even that's a pretty limited thing in the face of, of quantum mechanics and higher order uh physics and things like that. So um, I think the fundamental challenge for, for people in this, in our modern world is, is what can we know for sure? And so early on in the, the world, according to God, it's really a kind of establishing how we can know anything. What is our primary means of knowing? And no one would deny science, but what ends up happening in our modern world is we deny the role of reason. And because we do that, revelation just seems like, you know, uh, wishing on a star, not something that naturally flows from reason. And so uh, what I end up doing in a, in a very Catholic way, but not a, not a Protestant way, is I start at, from the very the second chapter in the book is, how can we know anything? Because that's really where the journey starts, even for our even for people who already believe, it's like this is how you deepen your faith and how you understand how to um, deal with the incursions of the, the greater modern culture into your thinking, your home life, the decisions you make, uh, the ends you pursue in life. So that's where it kind of starts. And if you if you know anything about the Protestant faith, it begins for them. It is all about revelation because they don't really understand or have tacitly rejected the idea that reason is revelation, just as revelation is revelation. And so the early part of the book from a Catholic perspective would be seen as what we would call natural theology. The, the knowledge we can have of God with our, with our ability to reason and observe what goes on in life and, and see that and the truth that's in it. So. You raised an important point because the Protestant view of knowledge deriving strictly from revelation is one of the things that sets this apparent confrontation between science and religion. Mm-hmm. And yet in your chapter on knowledge, you cover this topic a little bit about how we can know stuff through science, but we can know things through other means also. And that science is reliant on that also. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, 
and the simplicity of this is is striking because we don't often think this through. Like you're saying, we've bought into the cultural baggage to one degree or another that it's science versus religion uh, and that there's no way of getting at that any other way because we've defined religion as totally revelatory, um, which it certainly is, but not totally. Um, and so by by looking at the nature of science, we, we understand you cannot do science without reason. Science is really just reason applied to the physical world. Developing a hypothesis, you can't do an experiment for that. You have to think that through. You have to figure out what could be the possible uh, causes for the phenomenon you're just observing. And then you'd have to think through what would be the reasons to pursue a certain experimental methodology in order to get at that. So uh, science is reason from the beginning to end. And so when you know, when you begin to know that, you realize like, well, reason can tell us things just as clearly as science then, because reason is the thing that's guiding our science. Um, and what that does is it restores philosophy. Like nowadays, most people think of philosophy as you just your little opinion. That's that's your philosophy, not not that you can prove this. And and that's just not what philosophy has been from the Greeks down to now. Philosophy is a way of proving things. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, building on Aristotle, proved the existence of God five ways. And and his proofs are are deductive certainties, not some philosophical opinion. They're they're absolutely certain. Uh, just like mathematics and and higher order higher order mathematics, that's that you can't. Mathematics is totally deductive logic. Well, that's what Thomas Aquinas is using uh, in his proofs of God. And so, the the real kind of trick in the early chapters for me, and this is what I think is a little different than most books like this, is it really it really takes on and restores reason to its prominent role, both in science and in philosophy, and therefore in natural theology and in the Catholic, the Catholic worldview. So that's, that's what, that's why I began the book with, let's say you can know nothing. How do we know anything about our existence and, and build it from there? Again, I'm talking to Frank Cronin about his book, the world according to God, and one of the points you raised that reason is found all throughout science. Uh, you cannot have a hypothesis without reason. Uh, we tend to look at science strictly from a result uh, perspective rather than looking how we get to that result. What did we use in order to get there? And each time it's, you know, someone deciding that I need to do an experiment based on this reasonable assumption, this hypothesis. Correct. Um, one of the other things that I uh, found fascinating about the book is that one of the challenges that we're always confronted with in our culture is that this idea of my truth and your truth, but there's really no the truth. You talk a little bit about that in your book also. Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, if you think about it quickly from the standpoint of my truth, your truth, you, the, what you're saying then that there is, there is only personal truth, there's no actual factual truth. But you would have to develop a case to prove 
that all there is is personal truth. And in doing that, you would be contradicting yourself because you were proving the truth that there's no truth. That's a contradiction. You can't you can't have that. So the logic of it, it, it becomes illogical at that point to assume that. It's just like assuming that, <coughs> excuse me, assuming that science is the only way to know anything. Well, the only way you can make a case for science is the only way to know anything is to use reason because you can't do it scientifically. That too is a contradiction. And because it's a contradiction in logic both ways, whether you're building the idea that there are only personal truth or science as the only truth, you've you've broken those rules. You can't you can't unfix that. That means your your hypothesis that the truth that there's no truth or that science is the only truth, the, those opinions are dead on arrival. There's no way to defend them and and prove them. So why would you buy into them? You know, they're just kind of ideas out there that are existent without any proof. You cannot prove those. You also take on this world of materialism we live in, and you talk mm -hmm. about why faith isn't blind, but materialism and moral relativism are. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. I mean, uh, this is, comes from many years and many discussions with uh, particularly people who are atheistic or deliberate atheists. Uh, the more informed ones who are atheists, they already know this, but there are many who think they are. And, and so basically the assumption there is, is that if all there is is matter and energy, time and space in the universe, and there is no God, then uh, for an atheist, you have to explain everything with matter, energy, time, and space. And that's all you have because you've already ruled out the possibility of any kind of God, deity, a divine something in the universe. Well, that kind of that's what they call philosophical materialism or philosophical naturalism. And, and it's kind of another one of those things um, that's, that's dead upon arrival. If all there is is matter and energy, like our only way to know is a product of our, our um, cortical activity, just the neurons firing in our brain, we really can't know anything because all knowledge then becomes is a pattern of neural firings. Your, yours fire this way, mine fire, fire a different way. Both of us have different ideas. But there's there's no way to prove that. Those are just sensations of thinking, sensation of feeling, sensation of deducing. There's really no reality to that. And and so just like with the, the truth that there's no truth or all there is is scientific truth, if all we are is matter and energy, and this is not uh, this is a quote from a uh, evolutionary biologist in the 1940s, he would say, if all we are is matter and energy, we have no way of knowing that all we are is matter and energy, because all you can't even know that you can't know if all you are is matter and energy, because whatever you're thinking about that, you can't get to the truth either, because everything you are is just neural activity, nothing more. You have the sensation of knowing it, but but you can't even know that all that you sense is neural either. So this is another one of those that, that are, they're like stillborn conclusions. You, you have these opinions and you cannot back them up. They cannot be explained. You, you end up contradicting yourself. 
Well, you can't even prove that you have an opinion or an idea. Correct. That's exactly right. But if all you are is matter and energy, you can't know that all you are is matter and energy. This is you can't know anything actually. Yes. Um. Which brings me to one of the more fascinating uh, chapters. You talk about miracles and why God's nature mm-hmm. requires that he answer prayers and even perform miracles. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, you can't dictate that God performs a miracle, but, but the fact that God would perform miracles isn't surprising. Uh, I mean, for one... A big part of that can be the leap to, you know, to getting people to understand that God actually, not only does he exist, he has to exist based on everything we know about our universe and our nature. So he's out there. He is also <clears throat> a God who who not only wants us to know that he's there, but but desires that we would know him intimately and profoundly. Well, that kind of knowledge is 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 part and parcel of his love for us. So, of course, he's going to act that way, and he has the capacity because everything that that exists can't come from nothing. I mean, this is another part of, this is a derivative of Thomas Aquinas. You know, everything that exists had to begin with something, so he began all of this. Why would he not, on occasions, intervene with that, either particularly when we petition it or just generally. And so, uh, you know, there's some things that happen even, you know, this is the kind of idea of providence that happen almost mundanely in our life. This turn of events leads us to something else. And and while that might be hard to look at as seeing a, a divine intervention, but you can't ignore kind of those kind of providential experiences and circumstances as well. I mean, for example, getting into Harvard for me, I was having, uh, I was having dinner and watching the Super Bowl with one of my old Testament profs, a Protestant guy when I was at Regent University. And he suggested I wasn't thinking big enough and he encouraged me to do that. Well, that would have never occurred. Had I not watched the Super Bowl with them, I would have never even thought to apply there. And I got in, um, and it was kind of cool the way I got accepted, because when I called them up to get an application, they told me it was already six weeks after the closing day. Um, So they wouldn't even be able to uh, give me an application because the ones for the following year wouldn't be around. And and through, through a variety of kind of circumstantial kind of timing miracles almost, I was able to send the stuff in and I got accepted. So, you know, there's those little things when he has plans in mind for you, be mindful that he, he's, he's around and he's available and he will help you as he sees fit, sees fit. So for me, that's kind of where it is. One of the most fascinating ideas that came to me when I was in diaconate formation is that notion that God's love is always fruitful, always creative. And so ultimately, everything is still being created, especially us. And Mm -hmm. so if we allow him, everything in our life is constantly being created into what we're intended to be. And to me, that's perhaps the greatest miracle of all, that God is constantly working in every one of our lives, and so often we're unaware of it, 
and you know we ignore this miracle in our life right well and i I mean if you if you understand that god desires you loves you more perfectly than you can love him i mean most of us live reasonably contented lives and and we're we have intimate relationships with our wives our family our children our neighbors co-workers whatever and and we what we experience there is less than perfect love but we sure know it well this is a god who like you're saying who loves us perfectly and completely um is he he's also a father so he's trying to grow us up in in some measure to mature us but but that kind of love is kind of it, it, it never stops, and so it does have that component, an aspect to it, like you're talking about, of ongoing creativity, of uh, the newness of everything constantly. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Deacon. That, that, that's certainly a parameter of our relationship with God and the truth about how God works. Well, I was thinking as we were talking about, you know, just your marriage, the way you described it starting out and how, as a family, you all grew together into this relationship with God, and how, you know, he's probably not done yet with your marriage. I'm sorry? I said he's probably not yet done with your marriage, and yet, you know, it's just a miracle that, you know, you survived that shocked 10 days before the wedding day. And here you are. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, this is, there's layers to this. Um, you know, one of the things that Annie and I, uh, really got curious about having, once I kind of worked my way through God, the father and Jesus, we got really curious about who the Holy spirit was and what's that all about. And, and we also, at about the same time, we became very curious. It's like, we'd heard enough, Protestant pastors talking about God has a plan for your life. Let him call the shots. And, um, and that's what happened to us back in 92 in the fall, spring of 92, 93. Um, we were kind of doing a lot of that. And I had already had a master's degree. I didn't like graduate schools, a lot of work. Um, you know, read this, write a paper, read that, write a paper. Um, and you know, Six months after we really started seeking his will about what to do, I was down at Regent University getting another graduate degree. I mean, and since then, as you mentioned in the bio, I think I've picked up uh, uh, four and a half or five and a half uh, graduate degrees since then. His plan, not mine. I, you know, if acquiring that capacity, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't like graduate school, but he changed my mind on that and and made me go places I would have never thought to go. Uh, the same thing with even writing the world according to God. I had no real desire personally before, you know, before I became a Christian to do writing. It was like writing was a, a necessary evil to get through college, and I was pretty good at it under the gun. So, uh, and then, I, you know, that just kind of grew out of what he had in mind. So, uh, and you're right, we're never done. I mean, I'm I'm semi-retired now, but he's still working on me. And, and as well, he should. He's the perfect father. He's he's going to love me all the way till I'm with him in heaven. One of the other things, and we're nearing the end of the interview, uh, 
You talk a little bit about morality, and this is one of the topics that's so difficult to talk about in our culture because, again, morality is your truth and my truth, but there's no real morality anymore. So you talk about it not just being a list of prohibitions, but a gateway to love and peace. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, uh, I, I guess when you see morality as not a list of, of injunctions or things you're not supposed to do, it's a pathway to true goodness. True goodness, you, it, the, quint, the, the essence of that is is love. And so it's the idea of making us better. And I think that's part of what gets lost in this philosophy of individual truth or the, the living that contradiction. Um, because our our freedom use as Americans has always been posited on doing good. Uh, John Milton has a great quote about this when he talks. He says, uh, only good men can love freedom. The rest love not freedom but license. And we're in an era of license. So the idea of being good uh, is a joy. I mean, and being good doesn't mean you don't have fun. That was a big part of uh, our lives. And I think it's one of the tricks of parenting with our kids that we were able to raise them to be fun-loving kids, but good kids. And I think real goodness doesn't preclude fun. You know, as long as you're having good, clean fun, uh, God is not opposed to this. Um, you know, in fact, it's it's there's a, a joy part to that, not just in a theological sense, but in a very immediate, practical, experiential sense that life is is a great gift, and he ha- he wants us to experience that in the as we become better and better, we we become a fuller and richer embodiment of real goodness, which is a real joy. Um, Jesus wasn't a kind of character where people. You know, didn't want to be around him. wasn't a dry philosopher. He was a living and breathing, perfect human being, and that was radiant and drew people. You mentioned that uh, C.S. Lewis was an influence on uh, your conversion, and uh, mm-hmm. we just did a book study on the Screw Tape letters. And one of the points that Screw Tape makes in there is that all pleasure ultimately comes from God. That mm-hmm. the devil can't produce any pleasure; all he can do is warp it. And I think this is something that, you know, our culture fails to understand that just because we enjoy something, if it's not following God's plan, it's probably a warped version of what he intended for us. He wants us to have pleasure, but he wants us to have it so it is beneficial for us. Right. And it's edifying and so on. And and most people know this to one degree or another. I mean, they may love watching their favorite TV show, but they shouldn't be doing that all of the time. They know I have to go to work. I need to be doing these things. So um, a fair amount of that is still out there in spite of this relativistic culture. But what I think happens is, is that we no longer have the intellectual capacity to, to join those things and knit them together that we can't, you know, while most people would understand, you know, you need to be, it's right to be industrious. It's right to be busy and doing things and accomplishing things. It's also right to have a degree of leisure. And, and no one, most people see the common sense of that. What they don't understand is linking that to a greater good and a bigger cosmic uh, kind of approach to things. 
And that's where the that's why I think the epistemology matters. The theory of knowing matters. That's why we get those fragmentations or or competing things that you mentioned earlier between science and faith. They're, those are not the way it is. Our faith encompasses science. You can't do science without reason. And and when you use reason, you have to explain where that came from. And 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 that's an intangible reality and lawful thing we use it all of the time in mathematics so these things are all meant to knit together and i think for most people other than you know people who are really investigated and bought into philosophical relativism most people could get this but they're but they just have to find their way through the thicket of knowing and unpacking some of this a little bit and that's why in some measure i wrote the world according to god and speaking of which, where could our listeners get a copy of the book? Well, uh, you can get it at Sophia Institute Press. They are the ones who are publishing it. But it's also available on Amazon and I believe Barnes & Noble and most online places. You should even be able to get it through your local Catholic bookstore, even even retail stores if you have to order it. So, um, you know, almost anywhere. And uh, I encourage all our listeners to order a copy of this, give it as a Christmas gift, uh, buy several copies and give them out as Christmas gifts. This is a wonderful uh, book. Uh, Mr. Cronin, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, next week, Gene uh, Wilhelm will be your host. Until that time, when weighing the ways to please God, always round up. Oh, rumors and talking.